MSW Media. This week, the Justice Department refused to produce the full Mueller report and underlying materials to the House Judiciary Committee, setting up a court fight that will determine whether the executive branch can hide evidence of criminal wrongdoing by the president. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Trump has vowed to, quote, fight all the subpoenas, and the House has had difficulty obtaining documents and witnesses from his administration. What can the House of Representatives do to counteract this unprecedented attempt to stonewall by the Trump administration? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I, I will tell you, it was interesting to see that site of uh, Bill Barr's empty chair uh, the other day in front of House uh, House Judiciary. And I think it's kind of a symbol for what we uh, are seeing from this administration in general, which is Trump promising to fight, quote, all the subpoenas, unquote. And, you know, the, the Justice Department unwilling to provide even the Mueller, the full Mueller report and underlying materials to the House Judiciary Committee. Yeah, it certainly set things up for a little bit of theater, didn't it? I don't know if you saw the uh, the one gentleman that was eating a bucket of chicken to uh, demonstrate how much of a chicken bar is, I guess. I did. And I got to tell you, you know, I I understand the point, but I didn't like it because I felt that the stakes were so large that, I mean, right. I, he got a lot of coverage out of that. I, I appreciate what he's trying to do. But I think that, you know, ultimately Barr is... Um, thumbing his nose at the House Judiciary Committee. He's basically saying, if you have an attorney ask me questions, I'm not going to sit sit there and answer them. Uh, because I think he's got to be concerned about the the answers that he'd be that he'd have to give. I think that there's going to be some very, very important um, uh, court cases coming up between House Judiciary and the Justice Department. And frankly, I think Barr's answers would have been used against him in that litigation. So I I think it's, uh, you know, it's the stakes are so large and so uh, important that I don't want people to think that this is just a joke or a political ploy. Well, and that's why it's always going to turn to you to find out what's going on and what's going to happen next. Well, absolutely. And here we're going to have kind of, a you know, an interesting perspective, because in addition um, to me coming at this from the, you know, experience of being somebody who's litigated a lot of cases so I can talk about, you know, how the how the battle will be in court between the Justice Department and uh, House Judiciary. We're going to have um, a professor who is one of the leading scholars uh, in his field. So now let's bring in Professor Josh Chaffetz. Uh, he's a professor at Cornell Law School. He was a Rhodes Scholar, also a Yale Law School graduate. Graduate, But he's, he's somebody who is a leading scholar uh, on the issue of the separation of powers and balance of power between the executive branch and the legislative branch in the Constitution. He's written and published on that, uh, and he is 
uh, somebody who I think can add a lot to this conversation from the perspective of a constitutional scholar. Welcome to the uh, podcast, Josh. Uh, Professor, I'm... Uh, one thing I, I think would be a helpful starting point uh, is we, I think all of us have been hearing this word oversight used. Can you explain mm-hmm. to us what that means uh, from the from when we're talking about congressional oversight? Sure. So the basic idea is that uh, Congress, uh, each House of Congress, has sort of broad responsibilities for making sure that not only their own branch, but that the other branches, and especially the executive branch, are functioning the way they intended them to. Um, you know, the, the Constitution itself really you know, specifies a sort of very bare-bones uh, executive branch, right? It specifies a, a president and a vice president, um, and then it says there will be departments, and it talks about the heads of departments, but it doesn't specify what those departments will be. So basically the entire executive branch is created and structured by Congress, um, and that means Congress has responsibility for making sure that it's working the way that it's supposed to be working and the way that Congress wants it to work. Um, and so that means uh, sort of authority to uh, inquire into it, authority to sort of seek out information about how the, the executive branch is, is doing its job. So is that something that's inherent in the structure of the Constitution, or is it specifically listed in, uh, in the text of the Constitution? No, so it's, it's understood to be a, a sort of structural inference. Um, the, the idea is that you can't, it, it would be sort of absurd to give a legislature all of this responsibility and yet deny it access to the information that it would need to exercise that responsibility. Um, so it's, it's, it's an inference from structure, but it's also uh, from history as well. So um, uh, the House of Commons uh, exercised this kind of authority uh, when, when the United States was still part of Britain. Um, uh, the, the colonial and state legislatures all did uh, uh, varying amounts of oversight. So it's just been understood to be something that legislatures do. That makes sense. So we, we've been hearing over, um, obviously, the last uh, weeks and months since the Democrats took the House representatives of, you know, battles over oversight, obviously battles over subpoenas, uh, battles over information, battles over, for example, witnesses. And, you know, recently uh, Trump has taken the position that uh, they would, quote, fight all the subpoenas. And uh, what I I would love for you to do is if you could help us explain in historical perspective how this is either similar to or different from fights that we've had over oversight in the past. Sure. So um, just about every president has contested certain congressional requests for information. Going back to George Washington, there have been sort of fights where Congress has said, we want this piece of information. And the executive has said, no, we're going to withhold that for you. Um, for reasons sounding in uh, what's come to be called executive privilege. Um, so, so specific fights over information like that are, are fairly uh, frequent occurrence. What's, to me, completely unusual about what the Trump administration is doing is that it's doing this across the board. So, as I said, in, in previous administrations, it's always been, well, you've asked for this one particular thing that we don't think you should have, um, and we're going to explain why we don't think you should have it. But while that fight is going on, all of the other oversight is just sort of continuing as normal. Um, most recently, uh, in both the Bush II and Obama administrations, there were you know, very vigorous fights. In the Bush II administration, it was over the firing of a bunch of U.S. attorneys. Uh, in the Obama administration, it was over the fast and furious uh, gun-walking operation. And in both of those cases, while 
the White House was withholding information from Congress that Congress had subpoenaed and while these contempt of Congress fights were going on, um, still all of the other normal oversight business was, con- was, was sort of going on as usual. What, what the Trump administration has done is said, we're not going to respond basically to any oversight requests. And that strikes me as not just a difference in degree, but a difference in kind from what previous administrations have done. Yeah, it, it really is uh, in many ways essentially denying that the House of Representatives uh, or in the, really the entire Congress should have this role at all. Uh, it's really essentially saying that this sh- there should not be this check, this check and balance that we usually have on the executive branch. I think that's exactly right. right? It, it, it's not denying that a particular piece of information is uh, suitable for, for being turned over for oversight. It's denying that oversight as a concept is suitable. Um, uh, and that uh, strikes me as an incredibly dangerous uh, thing to claim and something that uh, no other White House, not even the, not even the Nixon White House, has, has uh, come anywhere near claiming that. Yeah, I um, I have to say, I thought one one thing that captured my attention is uh, you know Michael McConnell, who listeners may not know, but he was a very important and influential conservative scholar who was elevated to be on the Court of Appeals uh, under the Bush two administration, George W. Bush administration, and now he's back to being a professor. Sort of was talking about this fight and saying there's nothing to see here, and you and him had a debate, and essentially his position I think boiled down to that he didn't believe that this was actually the position of the Trump administration. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, basically what he said is, um, well, maybe if the Trump administration really followed through on that, it would be uh, it would be a big deal. But essentially, Trump says so many things he doesn't mean. He's so blustery in general that we shouldn't uh, take him at his word when he says they're going to defy all the subpoenas. Yeah, I have to say that the, the the issue I would take with that is that it certainly appears that that his administration is doing that, right? I mean, just let's take take a look at something that I think is very central to a lot of our listeners, which is the results of the Mueller investigation. So the 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 what I would think, and and I'll be interested in your perspective, that the House of Representatives would have a very strong claim to getting all of the results of that investigation because, after all, it was a criminal investigation of the president of the United States, and so presumably the House has some responsibility to uh, uh, examine those results and determine whether it wants to impeach. Uh, but there's very you know uh, there's now a going to be a protracted legal fight over the the receipt you know whether or not the full Mueller report can be produced. And obviously, they've been fighting over witnesses and underlying materials and other things as well. Exactly. And, it's, and, and um, I, I, I agree with you completely that the, the Mueller report is clearly something that there's no good reason to be able to keep from the, um, from the House of Representatives. In fact, in a lot with, I mean, the other thing that the Trump administration is doing that's highly unusual is that in a lot of these cases where it refuses to comply with a subpoena, uh, or, or even preliminary steps sort of refuses to comply with the request for information, it's not even claiming executive privilege. It's just saying, basically, we don't want it. Um, and that's, uh, that's completely, I think, inappropriate. Because, again, if you go back to this idea that basically Congress has this oversight power, it has the right to whatever information it wants, except in very specific circumstances where there might be some uh, good reason, some particular privilege that says, no, you don't get this information. With the Trump administration not even claiming that some of this information is privileged, 
essentially they're, they're saying, we don't have to give you a good reason. We're just not going to give you the information. And that, I think, is what's going on with, uh, with the, Mueller, the Mueller report and you know, the unredacted Mueller report and the underlying information. It's what's going on with their fighting these subpoenas to the, um, the accounting firm and to Deutsche Bank. Um, you know, they're not claiming, um, uh, they're not making sort of specific claims about executive privilege in any of these cases. Yeah, I have to say, um, just to um, you know, just to uh, you know, talk about the Mueller report for a second. You know, the sure. assistant assistant attorney general uh, Boy, uh, Stephen Boyd, you know, the laid forward the reasoning very uh, very recently Wednesday of this week, and he said essentially that the, the House shouldn't be permitted to second guess the investigative decisions of the Justice Department um, and um, essentially duplicate their efforts. Uh, that is, in fact precisely what an impeachment inquiry is, right? If you couldn't, if the House of Representatives couldn't do a duplicative investigation and second guess what the executive branch is doing, then they couldn't impeach ever, right? I would assume. I mean, that's not just what an impeachment investigation is. That's what oversight is, period, right? It's, it's looking over the shoulder of the executive branch and second guessing their decisions and trying to decide if those decisions were appropriate or not. And I think you're absolutely right, especially in the context of the Mueller report and the possibility of impeachment. Um, the idea that the Justice Department, which is under the control of the White House, uh, especially this Justice Department, which seems to be um, more under the control of the White House than previous ones, um, the idea that they get the absolute final word and that Congress can't then come in and, and reconsider it is, uh, uh, strikes me as absurd. And even more so when the Justice Department has long taken the view that the president can't be indicted. If the president can't be indicted, and then that's taken as a sort of uh, final word on the matter that the House can't uh, uh, reopen with an impeachment investigation, that's just saying the president can never be held responsible for anything. Well, the, the uh, listeners are also wondering, Professor, whether or not Congress has a recourse. What kind of actions can they take to uh, speed things up or intervene when it comes to the White House, House's efforts to stonewall? Sure. So that's a, that's a great question. And I think, you know, a lot of people's first instinct, especially a lot of lawyers' first instinct, uh, is that they should go to court. And this indeed is what the House of Representatives did under both the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration after they held, uh, in the first case, Harriet Myers and Josh Bolton in contempt or in the Obama administration, Eric Holder in contempt. They then uh, went to federal court, basically seeking a court order saying, you know, you have to um, uh, comply with the subpoenas. Um, the problem with that is it takes forever. Um, so the, um, uh, the, the Eric Holder case, for example, wasn't finally settled until about six years after the House of Representatives first made the demand for information. Um, so that basically makes the judicial route useless as far as oversight goes, because the Congress that's trying to do the oversight will have ended. The administration they're trying to oversee may well have ended. Um, but I do think there are a number of other things that Congress can do, that a House of Congress can do, that are sort of within their own uh, control that will have uh, significantly more effect. Um, and these are tools that sound much more in politics than in law. Um, just the mere fact of holding someone in contempt uh, is actually one of those things. It's a, um, uh, it's, it sort of heightens the public salience of the, of the interbranch fight uh, and therefore uh, has the potential, at least, uh, to uh, sway public opinion, which is something that uh, most White Houses will care about fairly significantly. Sort of escalating from there, you can then do sort of increasingly aggressive uses of hearings, uh, which in turn will get sort of increasing levels of media attention in ways that, again, will, will, could inflict political damage. 
the sort of highest version of that is starting actual impeachment proceedings, which would obviously result in sort of wall-to-wall uh, television coverage and, and sort of would, would take over the political uh, uh, discussion almost completely. Um, and then they can use things like the power of the purse. Um, they can, for example, uh, they could attach an appropriations rider uh, to next year's uh, appropriations bill saying, uh, you know, no money can be drawn from the Treasury to pay the salary of any uh, cabinet official who's currently being held in contempt of Congress. Uh, or they could uh, cut funding to that, uh, to that cabinet official's department. Um, there's sort of a lot of different ways they could try to pull on the purse strings or try to use other political tools to, uh, uh, to sort of enforce these demands for information that would be much more quickly effective than trying to go through the court. You know, very interesting ideas, and I and I have to say that you're, Patty, you're right. That's a, I think an excellent question from our listeners. You know, the, the problem is for right now is that there's really no shame uh, by anyone in the Trump administration. So I think it might be a badge of honor for them to be held in contempt. I think they might be celebrated uh, on uh, sort of Trump, uh, you know, right wing media and Trump's allies if they, um, you know, were, were thumbing their nose at the at the House and there was various hearings and so forth. And on, and I think the bar uh, and the Trump administration want to goad the Democrats into starting a formal impeachment inquiry, because for whatever reason, I'm not a I'm not a an expert on politics and polls, but the House Democrats seem to be reluctant to formally do that. And it seems uh, to me that uh, Barr wants them to do that or wants them to invoke the word impeachment, the I word. You know, I think the what I see is what you're saying that is going to take a long time is that from my from what I see as a as a as a litigator is I see House Judiciary positioning themselves for a lawsuit. They're trying to seem as reasonable as possible to a judge. They're trying to undercut any potential, um, uh, you know, objection the Justice Department could have. And I what I see is them you know, trying to lay the groundwork, they've, they've, they've now made this ripe, uh, to go to court, but you, but, you know, can you explain to us why the fast and furious lawsuit took six years? I mean, that I think is, means that that, that strategy may be meaningless. Yes. I mean, basically what happens is, um, uh, even in areas where the law is actually fairly clear because these executive, and, and I should say the law is fairly clear when it comes to executive privilege. It's, it's a fairly, tightly constrained privilege um, in both when they finally sort of got to the end of the day in both the um, Myers and Bolton cases and the Holder case, uh, the courts basically came down on Congress's side and said these uh, executive branch officials did have to respond to the subpoenas. Um, But each particular sort of uh, uh, piece of, you know, each particular document demanded or each particular topic on which you might uh, uh, seek someone's testimony um, each one of those raises a fairly fact-intensive question of executive privilege. And so you have uh, a fairly uh, uh, a, 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 an inquiry that can uh, take a lot of time. Um, you can have, uh, then you have the, the appeals process, which can, which can take a lot of time. Then even if they lose at the Court of Appeals, they can ask the Supreme Court to hear it. The Supreme Court may or may not, but, even, but just getting uh, the Supreme Court to say we're not going to hear it uh, is going to take several more months. You sort of start adding all of that together, um, especially if you start running the clock, not when the lawsuit is initially filed, but when the sort of initial request for information was made by the Congressional Committee. And we're talking, you know, many years at at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I think that 
you know, there is, I, I agree with you that House Judiciary is positioning itself to sort of look reasonable before a district court. But I think that's also positioning itself to look reasonable before the public um, if it does wind up coming to something like impeachment. Um, because they can sort of say to the public, look, we, we didn't rush into this, you know, we didn't uh, 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 introduce uh, uh, articles of impeachment on, you know, January 21st, as soon as we took control of the House, right? We uh, have tried to be patient. We've asked for all this information over and over again. We have a perfect right to it. We've given them a chance to sort of think about it. And finally, at the end of the day, we were sort of forced into this position. So the things that make them look reasonable before a district court, I think, will also make them look reasonable before a public um, if, if the, the Trump administration does wind up sort of pushing them to the point where they find uh, initiating impeachment proceedings to be the, the right move. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners are trying to understand why there's any delay at all. And from the perspective of a court case, um, waiting another week or another couple of days to appear more reasonable is often the smart strategy from just a litigation position. And as you point out, potentially from from the perspective of public opinion as well. Uh, one thing that um, I think is an interesting uh, uh, an interesting situation here regarding the Mueller report is I don't think that there's any serious claim that there could be executive privilege here. I don't really think that that's being invoked. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, as you point out, there may still be factual issues regarding redactions. You know, I wonder as to witnesses. So we know now that uh, at least this morning, there's there at least seems to be some agreement as to having Mueller testify. Um, but regarding some of the other witnesses like Don McGahn, they, who have left, who are not in government service, but nonetheless, um, there could be an argument over executive privilege. We know that, for example, Trump has suggested that he may uh, keep McGahn from testifying. What what ability does the executive branch have uh, to um, to use executive privilege as, a, I'd say, an excuse or a reason to to um, ask a private citizen not to testify? Um, so. Executive privilege can still uh, apply to, to uh, someone who is now a private citizen uh, for things that, uh, that happen sort of in their capacity as a government official. So the, the sort of case where executive privilege seems to have the most bite is sort of close advisors to the president in their personal interactions with the president. And the, the rationale there is, well, you want the people immediately surrounding the president to be able to give sort of full and frank advice without worrying that this will become public in, in some way. So that, um, that rationale continues to apply even um, if the person has now left his job in the White House as a, as a private citizen. Um, that said, you know, I, I think a lot depends on what someone like McGahn himself actually wants to do, um, because it's not entirely clear exactly what the White House's move would be uh, if it wanted to assert, assert executive privilege and McGahn wanted to testify, um, you know, it could try to get an injunction um, uh, in federal court. And then the question would be, first of all, whether a federal judge would be willing to actually uh, enjoin um, a, uh, a congressional committee. And second of all, uh, what would happen if uh, it tried to enjoin it and the congressional committee said, no, you're going to obey our subpoena, not the federal court's injunction. Um, that would sort of raise an interesting uh, separation of powers conflict between the judiciary and Congress, where uh, it's sort of not quite clear, you know, there will be sort of conflicting um, uh, demands on, uh, on McGon in that situation for, for what he uh, sort of has an obligation to do. 
Yeah, I have to say, I you know, executive uh, privilege is usually a shield, not a sword. I think it would be very hard if McGahn yeah. wanted to testify. Um, the pro- I think the you know the uh, the issue would be what if McGahn is willing to go along with what the White House wants. I mean, I will say, you know, Don McGahn um, certainly appears to have told the truth to Robert Mueller and and also refused to do things that he considered to be unlawful to his great credit. But he's obviously, you know, he's a, a conservative and and uh, somebody who has continued to praise uh, President Trump since he, you know, since he left the White House, uh, the smart move for McGahn would be to to get out of testifying if he could and not not upset anyone uh, by saying, look, I'd love to testify if I could. But the Trump administration is telling me I can't and you know, use that as an excuse not to. I think that's a more likely outcome. Yeah, I think that's that's probably right. And then again, the 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 the, the question is, uh, what does the House of Representatives decide to do about that? Um, you know, again, the, the precedent from the last two administrations would be, well, we're going to go to federal district court. Um, I think if they did that, there's just no way that, that even if they, you know, even if they win, there's no way that McGahn would wind up testifying before this Congress, which is to say no way he'd wind up testifying before the 2020 election. Um, on the other hand, I can imagine ways that you could pressure, um, uh, pressure the White House to drop that claim, the, the executive privilege claim, one of which being, hey, if you're not going to let the former White House counsel uh, testify before uh, Congress, then we may have to just cut the budget of the White House counsel's office in half. Um, you know, there's sort of they're, there's a lot that they can do to try to uh, to try to force the White House to the table on things like that. It's interesting because I think a lot of our listeners are frustrated. They they always thought that, you know, the uh, that uh, there is this the, the law, the legal system in their minds would um, make it so that if somebody did something wrong, they could be brought to justice. It's not always uh, as simple as that. I think there are a lot of limits to the legal system that that a lot of our listeners have been learning about as they've watched the news. And they're trying to figure out what you know, how how could. How could this uh, how could um, you know, how could this actually, um, you know, be countered? And really, it seems like the main way is through the power of the purse. But I wonder if that would have political consequences for House Democrats, because they would be seen as, for example, uh, potentially precipitating a a shutdown or something like that over Mm -hmm. uh, witnesses testifying and documents, things that maybe the average person uh, who's not paying close attention doesn't really understand the significance of. Well, and all what, what all of this will come down to at, at the end of the day is, is a battle for the sort of hearts and minds of the American people. That's you know these are these are uh, uh, high stakes political disputes, and and at the end of the day, what set, what what winds up settling high stakes political disputes uh, is where the public throws its uh, throws its affection. Um, so it is possible that House Democrats could wind up. Um, getting blamed for pre- uh, precipitating a partial government shutdown if, uh, for example, they try to put those riders in an appropriations bill and either the Senate refuses to pass it or the president refuses to sign it with those riders. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, if possible, you know, if they have sort of spent the time laying the groundwork, sort of convincing the public that this isn't just a sort of technical matter of witnesses testifying, but rather is a question of um, uh, whether the president is going to recognize sort of any constraints on him, any other institutions uh, having any kind of legitimate role in governing or not. And if you can sort of spent several months making that case to the public and sort of showing that you've done it in a 
uh, reasonable, deliberate way, right? You haven't sort of rushed into anything. You've given the White House all kinds of chances to come to the table, and they've refused it. You know, you sort of go before the microphones. You, you say, you know, sort of more in sadness than in anger. Hey, you know, it, it's come to this. Um, and then the question is, who does the public believe? Um, and the truth is sort of who gets uh, responsibility for causing a government shutdown usually winds up being a question of who the public believes. Right? So during the, um, the, the shutdowns in 1995, 1996, with the sort of uh, Gingrich-led Congress on the one hand and President Clinton on the other, um, you know, we tend to remember that as, well, Gingrich shut down the government. Um, except the thing is, actually, Bill Clinton vetoed several bills that would have reopened the government. So when we say that Gingrich shut down the government, we're actually sort of expressing a view about who had the better substantive arguments, not a procedural view about sort of what the, you know, whether bills were passed or not. The same thing could happen here, right? Whether this winds up being House Democrats shut down the government or Republicans uh, in the Senate and the White House shut down the government is going to be a question of who the public actually thinks is in the right. I think a lot of people, as Renato mentioned, are frustrated, and, and it does seem as though everyone's trying to frame the argument. One of the elements that came up this week, obviously Speaker Pelosi um, said that Barr had lied to the House. Is it possible mm-hmm. that the House will go after him for perjury? Well, yeah, I think it's, I think it's completely possible. Um, I think, um, again, but, but going after him for perjury would have to be um, in the form of something like uh, impeachment hearings. Right. Um, or, or contempt of Congress proceedings, um, because obviously the Department of Justice isn't going to prosecute Barr. Yeah. And I would have to say I'll say from a prosecutorial angle um, that, you know, and I tried to make this point um you know, on Twitter for many of you to talk for many of you is that Barr, I'd say when you actually look at his testimony was very careful, I think, to technically not lie, but to say things that were very highly misleading. And so he has answers for every one of, you know, he'll, he would have an argument for every one of these particular questions and answers that he could say, look, you asked me whether or not uh, these unnamed Mueller staffers um, were, you know, had concerns. I don't know. I don't even know which people they are, what people they're referring to. Robert Mueller read me, wrote me a letter. I know what Robert Mueller thinks, but I don't know about them. Um, you know, that's very technical. If your if your kid right. said that to you, you'd be like, you're a liar. You're <laughs> lying to me. If your friend did that or your spouse, you say you're a liar. But in a court of law, could that be proven beyond a reasonable doubt? You know, that I to me, what it shows is that Barr knows exactly what he's doing. He's trying to deceive Congress and he knows how to avoid real consequences like a potential uh, criminal charge coming out of it. Now, that doesn't mean there couldn't be impeachment, as you're saying. But I think Barr well, I, is trying to be clever. Say that, you know, contempt of Congress is um, much less uh, technical in that sense um, than than perjury than, you know, criminal perjury is. Um, so. Uh, you know, if the House of Representatives decides that it is contumacious for a witness to uh, be sort of highly misleading, even if it's not the kind of thing that could be provable as a lie uh, in the criminal context, um, the, the House could certainly decide that that warrants uh, a contempt citation. Now, the, the question then, of course, comes back to the same question we've been talking about. How do you choose to enforce the contempt citation? Right. And just to make sure everyone understands that. Uh, generally speaking, when someone is found in contempt, then it's referred to the United States attorney in the District of Columbia, which is it's Jesse Liu here, another former Yale law alum who I know. 
but she's uh, works for uh, Mr. Barr, so it's very unlikely to that she's going to prosecute her boss. Uh, and so then you have a potential inherent power to punish contempt, where you can send the sergeant in arms to arrest somebody. I don't really see the sergeant in arms marching into the Justice Department to arrest Mr. Barr. So it really seems hard for me to believe that there would be any teeth to that. Do you have a different view? Well, again, again, the the. Um I think the most plausible way that, that, that Congress can go about enforcing uh, contempt is, is through um, these political tools, is through the power of the purse, is through uh, its ability to sort of control the narrative, is through its ability to uh, hold hearings and try to embarrass the administration. Um, these are all ways of enforcing a contempt citation, even if they don't sort of seem that way if, if we're looking at it through a, through a more legalistic lens. But from the perspective of Congress, uh, as far as sort of forcing the administration to the table, um, you know, in general, nothing works nearly as well as threatening to cut funding. Yeah, I you know, I will say because um, a lot of folks uh, listening to this are like, well, why does that? So basically you're telling me nothing matters. Well, no, things do matter. The House of Representatives uh, flipped after the last election. Very important. Uh, development that now means that they can use the power that they have with the power that uh, the professor's talking about is the power of the purse is the power to spend money. Those bills have to come to tax and spend have to come from the House of Representatives. That's the power that Congress has. And uh, that's pretty significant. Exactly. And, and um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I understand why people want there to be a sort of um, a, a, a legalistic answer to this, right? I say, well, you know, um, uh, they did a bad thing. They can be punished. It's sort of automatic. That's the way the system's supposed to work. Um, but in fact, there's no, especially at this sort of high political level, there's no clean separation between law and politics here. Um, uh, at the end of the day, really what this is going to come down to is, is sort of looking forward towards the 2020 elections. Um, and sort of who is better able to convince the public that, that they are sort of deserving of trust. That doesn't mean that nothing will change between now and 2020, because both sides will be looking forward to 2020 and trying to sort of adjust their strategies uh, to uh, sort of best position themselves for 2020. And that might mean that sort of uh, sides have the two sides have different incentives about giving and taking in the interim. Um, but at the end of the day, there's not going to be some sort of magical force outside the system that's going to come in and solve this. This is going to be solved through the process of politics. Yeah, I have to say one thing that listeners know I've constantly been saying is that, you know, you should not sit back and wait for some magical lawyer, whether it's Robert Mueller or some <laughs> other prosecutor, to ride in on a horse uh, and save you or save our democracy. That the reality is everyone has to work hard and support the candidate of their choice and, and vote and do all of that stuff uh, to to make make any real change. One thing I, um, uh, you know, I do, um, you know, I do wonder um, with with all of this is, you know, where is this the way that our system you know, has operated in the past? In other words, are we so far outside the, the norm that we have to think about potentially reforming our constitutional or legal order to ensure that we don't have a situation like this again when we all, you know, eventually have a new president? Well, I think um, I, I think it should cause us to rethink certain trends. Um, that have been sort of especially pronounced really over the last 50 or 60 years towards centralizing power, um, not even just in the executive branch, but in the White House in particular. Um, uh, and, and the truth is we, we saw some of this rethinking happen after Watergate, 
So after the sort of last, you know, really major presidential scandal, the last one where impeachment uh, and conviction uh, uh, was sort of plausibly on the table, obviously Clinton was impeached, but the conviction uh, was never was never plausible there. Um, we saw sort of Congress actually step up in the aftermath of Watergate, pass a number of statutes that were aimed at sort of uh, reining the White House in, that were aimed at taking back certain amounts of uh, power from the White House, and actually aimed at uh, putting a lot of that power in the hands of Congress, certain sort of internal structural reforms in Congress, uh, to things as sort of seemingly disconnected from Watergate as the budget process, but that actually had the effect of sort of concentrating more power in Congress than had been the case for a while before that. Then starting sort of in the 80s, um, power begins to get concentrated uh, in the White House again. Um, and we're sort of at the apex of that. So all kinds of things like, you know, the National Emergencies Act or the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, all of these things I think should be looked at and potentially tightened up in the aftermath of the Trump administration. Now that we've seen sort of the full extent of the ways that they can be abused by a president who really is seeking to uh, avoid almost any other institution having any kind of checking role over him. So I'm not sure it would be sort of reforms at the level of uh, amendments to the written constitution necessarily, but all of the various sort of statutory ways that we go in, that we go about sort of filling in the details of our constitutional order, uh, I think should be, should be thought about anew uh, in the aftermath of this administration. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, you could also imagine statutes that would um, ease the process of, you know, document uh, production to Congress or witness production mm-hmm. to Congress that would impose requirements and sort of strict review processes that would make it much more plausible to have a, a dispute between those two branches within the time frame of a single Congress. If they wanted to, I mean, if 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 Congress and and a president were on board with getting that something like that signed into law, I would think that would be constitutional. I would think so too. Although I, you know, um, by the end of this administration, we're going to have a judiciary with an awful lot of very conservative judges on it, and and in particular, a lot of judges who have a very robust conception of a unitary executive. Uh, in ways that might make sort of uh, the courts at least more skeptical of um, mechanisms that that would sort of force presidents and force administrations to uh, produce more information uh, for Congress. You can imagine, um, you know, the way some of those mechanisms might uh, ideally be structured would involve, um, uh, you know, people like inspectors general who couldn't be fired or something, you know, couldn't be fired by the White House or something like that. Uh, Whereas I think uh, uh, conservative uh, lawyers have become more and more skeptical of um, anyone in the executive branch who can't be fired by the president. So um, I think you're right that there probably are uh, things that, that uh, along those lines that could uh, be effective. Uh, I would worry about the judiciary defanging some of them. Mm-hmm. You can imagine the same thing happen if, for example, there was a reform to the special counsel regulations uh, that made them more like an independent counsel like we had before. There was already some obviously constitutional concern with the independent counsel statute, which is gone, the one that uh, Kenneth Starr was appointed under. Uh, you could imagine uh, that uh, something that was created to try to protect a special counsel from future attempts to interfere uh, from the executive branch might also be, um, as you put it, defanged or undercut completely by the uh, conservative judiciary. I think that's exactly right. I mean, so so Morrison versus Olson was the case that uh, upheld the 
the old independent counsel statute, and it was an eight to one decision. Um, Justice Scalia was the only dissenter. Um, but now when you hear conservatives talk about the independent counsel, they are, you know, almost all, not entirely, but a lot of them sign on to the Scalia position um, to the extent that if, you know, if that statute were repassed, you know, in 2021, um, uh, I think the current Supreme Court, I don't know if it would overturn Morrison, but I, I suspect it would be a, a much closer decision uh, than eight to one. And maybe it would overturn Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, going forward, uh, I, is sort of is sort of a I think a, a, a last point to you. Going forward, a lot I'd say that there's a lot of despair and concern uh, amongst lit listeners uh, who are worried about what is happening, who are listening to this conversation and and thinking, okay, there's no. There's no hope uh, for anything to change. Can you uh, help them uh, see what things that they could do or what uh, possible ways in which um, we may be able to see an outcome that um, will be positive for our democracy and our constitutional order? Sure. I mean, I I think at the end of the day, uh, the the thing that that people can do uh, is is vote in 2020. Um, You know, I've I've, uh, uh, with a co-author, David Posen, um, written uh, a piece called How Constitutional Norms Break Down. And one of the points we try to make there is that um, when someone like, like Trump comes along and smashes a huge number of norms, there's sort of two things that could happen. Either those norms could stay smashed, right? The, the norm smasher could win, um, in which case uh, those norms basically cease to exist or cease to have any purchase. Um, or they could face such significant pushback that the norms actually emerge stronger than they were before. Um, so, for example, um, in the pre-Trump era, when we talked about sort of smashing governing norms, um, FDR running for a third term is the example that always comes up. And he smashes through that, or he gets elected a third time and then a fourth time. But it generates such significant backlash that we then get a constitutional amendment specifying that presidents can only serve two terms. Um, so the norm actually emerges, emerges stronger because it gets codified into constitutional text. The same thing could very much happen uh, with, a, with a backlash against Trump. So I think it's interesting, for example, that we see that um, so far, um, almost all, if not all, of the, the plausible uh, Democratic contenders for the presidency in 2020 are releasing their tax returns. Right? So Trump didn't do that. He sort of violated the norm in not doing that. And then um, the question is, well, okay, so going forward, is it the case that presidential candidates just stop releasing their tax returns or not? So far, he doesn't seem to have destroyed that norm, right? The Democrats are releasing their tax returns. And then the question is, well, okay, so who wins in 2020? If a Democrat wins in 2020, then I suspect we will see that norm sort of emerge even stronger than it was before. If Trump wins re-election despite that, then I think that norm is probably gone for good, along with a number of other ones that he has sort of blown right through. So to the extent that people care about the sort of stability of our constitutional order, the, the sort of respect for democratic norms, things like that, I think the thing that matters is 2020. And and one last thing, since you, you mentioned that, and uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she's concerned that Trump may not step down if he loses in 2020. Uh, if listeners are concerned about that, what what would what would your answer be on that question? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, Right. If we're if we're worried about a coup d'état, then at the end of the day, what we're talking about is the uh, norms that uh, hold within the the upper ranks of the military. Uh, to be totally honest, um, uh, right? If we're worried that Trump won't like actually would not leave office after losing an election, 
then the question would be, what do the people with guns do? Um, and from the, uh, you know, from the military officers I've known, uh, they all have tremendous respect for the constitutional order. Um, you know, it's, it's really uh, sort of drilled into people starting in the, in the, milita- in the uh, um, service academies uh, and going forward that they serve the Constitution, uh, not the person of the president. I suspect uh, that they would refuse to carry out any orders that were designed to entrench him in office after he lost an election. But, you know, really refuse to leave office. That, that's basically what we'd be talking about. It's a scary proposition, but I agree with you. I'm, I believe uh, that our system is stronger than any one human being to subvert it. And um, I think that's right. I I will tell you, Professor, it has been very enlightening. I appreciate you coming on, and thank you so much for joining us and for sharing some of your views because I think it's helped give us some real context. Put this in some historical context that I think is very important. That's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.